0: Exercise doesn't help weight loss. No. The reason exercise doesn't work is because... Professor Tim Spector. He's an award-winning scientist. Best-selling author and medical professor. And he
1: is ranked in the top 100 of the world's most cited scientists.
0: You know, we're about the future of personalized nutrition.
1: Many consider you to be the leading expert on gut health and diet. What's your view on the ketogenic diet? Virtually impossible. What about vitamins? Waste of money. What are the facts around fasting? Oh dear. Oh, shit, what do you mean, dear?
0: The food industry wants you to focus on calorie, fat content, sugar, so you don't have to think about the quality of the food. There's never been any long-term study showing that calorie counting is an effective way to lose weight and maintain weight loss. This is why I want people to think about food very differently than we have done in the past. So what is the cost? Depression and anxiety is intricately linked to the quality of your gut microbes. These are microscopic bugs in our intestines. All of them are able to pump out chemicals that are vital for our body when they're fed the right foods. The reason we're in this state is we've killed off a lot of our good bugs. I think people don't think of all the positive benefits
1: that don't think that you need to build them up. God, it's so confusing. You know, when you walk down the aisle in the supermarket, everything is trying to pretend that it's good. So how do I know what is good? You have to tim many consider you to be the leading expert on topics relating to gut health and diet and food etc but how would you describe your own professional academic bio what is that bio in your own words it's complicated
0: so i've changed form over the years quite a lot and I'm quite unusual in 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 terms of academic medics who usually stick very strictly to one speciality all their career and fear to go anywhere else so I was at medical school did the usual stuff then wanted to be a physician then did rheumatology what's rheumatology and bones and joints okay so that was my sub-specialty if you like Mm mm-hmm and, but I got interested in epidemiology, which is the study of uh, risk factors in populations, where you just look at thousands of people rather than one patient. Really, I, I switched again to study because I, I got really interested in the idea that identical twins should be the same. They're clones, they lived all their life together, all their genes are identical. What makes them different? Counter to what everyone thought, identical twins often die at different times. They get different diseases. One gets depression. One's fine. It's all these differences. So, what that was my sort of conundrum: what makes identical twins different when they have the same? They've lived the same lives. It was only through this sort of search to find this out that I looked at the gut microbes in in twins and found they were different. And that really scientifically took me onto this whole new path. From there, I made this sort of leap into nutrition to say, well, now we've discovered this whole new science. All this stuff we got wrong about nutrition suddenly makes sense. So now I would say I'm an epidemiologist who's really uh, specializing in in nutrition and gut health and trying to
1: change the way people think about food. That was a brilliant summary of your career and a- an academic background. Um, as a muggle like me that's really, you know, new to m- many of these topics, what I understand is the study of epidemiology is the study of the, like, genetic root causes of disease. Not just genetic. So right, it's so any, any, any root anything. cause of disease, right.
0: So, so the people studying COVID
1: yeah. were all
0: epidemiologists tracking a disease, trying to work out who's getting it, when it's coming back, how common it is, right? all these basic things in populations at a at
1: a sort of big population level. Right, got you. You've also written 800 articles, more than 800 articles on this subject matter. Um, in 2014, you set up the British Gut Microbiome Project and you've written five books on these subject matters. I mean, I've read two of them that are sat in front of me here. Um, I'm really intrigued by by the personal story as well because writing these books and doing all the work you've done Is a lot. It's a lot of work. It requires a lot of drive. I mean, this particular book, you you said it took almost six years to finish. What is the personal drive behind that? What is driving you to pursue this subject matter? You know, I just love getting into a new area, finding out
0: that something that everyone's been quoting for decades is total BS and was based on some tiny study of nine people. It's like I'm a detective, and so I've always had this, this quest to sort of be this uh, obsessional detective, I think, going into these areas. And at the same time, it's, that's coincided with you know, various events in my life as well that um, have probably pushed me in certain directions more than other, you know, that I wouldn't have gone otherwise.
1: What were those events in your life?
0: I guess you know, I was a pretty lazy um, student at school, it might sur- surprise some people. We always assume if you're a professor and you've made it, you were a swot at school, but I did the absolute minimum. So I scraped into medical school, scraped through the first few years of medical school. i spent one year proving that you didn't have to go to any lectures and could still pass, uh, which was a lot of work, actually, at the end, <laughs> I realised it was harder. Then, of course, age 21, my father died. Um, suddenly overnight with a heart attack uh, no warning at all I was off on a skiing holiday with some friends and I think in retrospect that that event uh, changed me and um, perhaps gave me you know a bit more uh, direction and drive than I would have had I'm not quite sure you know how it would have turned out if he hadn't died um, but to me, him dying at 57 suddenly like that um, made me think I, I need to you know, make more of my life. I could die early too. This was something that uh, you know, I think spurred me on to do all this kind of stuff that I didn't need to do but um, I felt perhaps more compulsion to do and maybe also got me interested in this whole idea of genetics to say, well, <laughs> you know... Did he have rotten genes um, am I have I got the same genes? Am I going to die in my fifties? So I think that looking back now, I think that's it's hard to be absolutely sure, but that that seems a a reasonable
1: scenario I've read and I've heard from members of your team that that left you with a feeling as you've kind of said there that you might also die young if it is a genetic thing
0: definitely yes no I, I was I was telling my kids, you know, this is this is it, you know, how many, how many here? I was sort of half joking, but saying, well, you know, I, you know, my time's, you know, I've only got seven years to go now, I've, you know, whatever it is. Um, you were saying that to your kids? Yes, you know, that's. Uh, uh, to try and prepare them? I guess so, but it was my way of, you know, I did it in a jokey way. It wasn't like um, I was writing my will and saying, you know, the candlesticks are here and the uh, uh, everything else, but it was, um, yeah, I used to make light of it. But, you know, underneath it, yes, I felt, well, you know, I could go early, so I need to get on with it, I think. And I was also, at that time, uh, probably speed was sped up by another personal incident I had at that time. Which was
1: a mini stroke.
0: Yes, we call it a mini stroke. It's a vascular occlusion, but I couldn't work for three months. I couldn't read, and I got bit depressed about that.
1: So those three months where you you can't read, um, I read that you were, the quote, I went from being a sporty, fitter than average middle-aged man to a pill-popping, depressed, stroke victim with high blood pressure. They said you were floored by this experience and for three months you couldn't work. From having a pretty fast-paced, frenetic life to being bedbound, And in those three months, you, you're focused on the microbiome increases right yes I,
0: I was i was just finishing up the very last bits of the, the previous book identically different which is about why twins were different right and as a sort of afterthought i had added one page about well actually the microbiome could be the key to this
1: what is the microbiome
0: it's the word we use for the community of gut microbes these are microscopic bugs in our intestines. And it, it's a, a biome because it's like this jungle community. It's a, lots of different species all together, thousands of them that coexist in our, in our lower intestine, our colon. And they, it's like we've discovered in the last 10 years a new organ in our bodies. If you put them all together, they weigh about the same as our brain. Okay, so it's, that's mind-boggling really to think about all these bugs which uh, individually are tiny, putting them together, they actually you know, weigh several pounds. So you can either think of them as a, as a microbial garden, but increasingly I'm shifting that towards thinking of them as a, an incredible pharmacy. So all of them are able to pump out chemicals all the time that are vital for our body. So thousands of different chemicals are pumped out every minute by these these gut microbes, uh, when they're fed the right foods. And these chemicals are key for our immune system. Most of our immune system is actually in our gut. We most people don't know that. We think it's, you know, under our armpits or somewhere. But actually, um, the, all the immune cells are actually talking all the time to our gut uh, microbes through these chemicals. And the, our immune system obviously is crucial for our whole body and fighting aging and cancer, COVID, infections, allergies, all these kind of things. So then you've also got the microbes can produce chemicals that affect the brain and will make the difference between you being happy or sad, or we know that they're, they're, they're vital in depression. Important for regulating how much you eat, your appetite, when you feel full. They also provide key vitamins for you, all the B vitamins and many other components, neurochemicals like serotonin that's key for the happiness and how antidepressants work are all produced by your gut microbes. So we're slowly learning that these guys are absolutely crucial to how our body responds to anything coming into it, whether it's painkillers, whether it's antidepressants, whether it's chemicals in the form of food. And this is why I, you know, I want people to think about food very differently than we have done in the past the idea the old idea that food is just calories macros you know with its fats and carbs and proteins those four things you know that's a 100 years old mentality but key to it is this this core of our gut health which we've ignored totally and this was this big aha moment for me after research for 10 years, what? why would identical twins, twins be different? What could it be? And it turns out their gut microbes are different. That's the only thing I've ever found in 30 years that's really different about identical twins. And that explains why one gets cancer, the other one doesn't, why one gets an autoimmune disease or one's depressed and one's happy. So for me, that the twins were a perfect um, obvious way to show that how important these these
1: microbes are for all of us what are some of the the biggest myths you encountered as you started researching the microbiome that most people currently believe that i probably sat here now believe about how to keep my um my gut healthy what are some of those key myths because i know you like myth busting
0: well i think most people believe that probiotics in yogurt get killed by your stomach acid so they don't work because everything gets killed off. That's a common one I hear. But they don't? No. um, Some get killed, but you're ingesting billions, so always enough get through to have an effect. And we know that probiotics do work, although the best probiotics are in food rather than in capsules. And there's plenty of fermented foods, which is the same. Um, I think um, most people know very little about microbes. They think that most of them are harmful. So, oh I've you know, they they cultured this microbe or they found a parasite. Fifty thousand people have now looked at their gut microbes in the US and the UK. In the UK, twenty-four percent have a parasite. And that parasite is actually beneficial. It's called blastocystis and it's associated with good health, being thinner, having less internal fat, lower blood pressure, and you know, in the past, we're trying to kill it off. And actually, the reason we're in this state is we've killed off a lot of our good bugs. So I think people need to realise that most of the bugs in our our system are trying to help us. And we've actually lost half of the good ones compared to if you go to hunter-gatherers or, you know, I spent some time with the Hadza tribe in Africa. And, you know... They have twice the number of species that we have, because they don't pop antibiotics, they don't have sterile foods, they have a very wide range of um, diverse plants, etc. So, I think people uh, think that you know their their gut microbes are really only there to hurt them when they have a bad kebab or something. Hmm. Uh, they don't think of all the positive benefits. They don't think that you need to build them up, and that actually you know they're like a mu- The more you've got, the better it is. How do I build them up? How do I become more like that tribe? You have to have a more diverse range of plants. So we did a study a few years ago with British and American guts that showed that if you can get up to 30 different types of plant a week, you maximise your diversity of species in your gut. And that's that diversity that we want. Remember... 30 plants you look a bit shocked but that's um it's a plant is a nut a seed it's not just kale um it's a herb it's a spice and things like coffee are a plant to me Mm. um because it comes from a fermented bean um so it's that diversity it's having more fermented foods it's uh, having a range of colours, it's cutting out um, the ultra-processed chemicals as well, which all the, all the groups in the population that have the best gut microbes, they don't eat ultra-processed foods, they don't have
1: antibiotics, they don't have this, this modern Western lifestyle. You mentioned calories there as well, um, when you were talking about the microbiome. One of my friends is a prolific calorie counter. And, you know, he eats a lot of Domino's pizzas. He'll, he listens to this podcast. so He's going to know exactly. He's going to know that I'm atting him. Um, he eats Domino's pizzas all the time. He eats like a, a real, you know, processed food diet. But then says to me, it's all about calorie counting. Now, with all due respect, friend, um, he's never <laughs> managed to not but um but it's not necessarily worked for him in terms of the goal that he set himself so when i was reading about your view on calorie counting in your book spoon fed it was i screenshotted it this morning and sent it to him and i sent i said you are a bullshitter that's what i said in the message and we had a good laugh about it this morning but what is your view on calorie counting and this idea that we can you know weight loss or being healthy is just about having a calorie deficit it's complete nonsense uh, thank you i'll clip that and send it to him
0: There's never been any long-term study showing that calorie counting is an effective way to lose weight and maintain weight loss after the the first few weeks. So, yes, uh, very strict calorie counting. If you deprive yourself for a few weeks, you will lose some weight. But uh, even if you're successful, your body's uh, evolutionary mechanisms will make you hungry and hungrier every week you go by where you're depriving yourself of energy, your body will go into sort of shutdown mode, your metabolism slows down. So you're not expending those calories. And inevitably, I'd say more than 95% of people will go back to their baseline and many go above it. They sort of rebound back if they're doing this, this style of uh, calorie restriction. Now, calorie counting is a part of that. So people try and Say, so, okay, I'm not, going, I'm not going on a dramatic diet, but I'm going to just try and reduce by 10% my calories in the day, which in the old theory was supposed to make you lose weight. Well, it's virtually impossible, even professionals, to count calories. And because uh, they're not very accurate for a start, everything on the packet, you have to weigh everything. And in restaurants now, we're supposed to have these calorie counts. They're plus or minus about 30% because portion size makes such a huge difference to it. that it's, it, And it's been shown in the U.S. to be a worthless exercise anyway. So you can't count them going in. You can't really count your metabolism going out either. We're all incredibly different. you know. Your friend's probably been told 2,500 calories is what he's allowed.
1: Mm.
0: Well, that's an average, uh, but it doesn't mean it relates to him. My average is much lower when I tested it. So everyone is an individual, and this is another thing we need to move away from this one-size-fits-all guidelines. But I think more importantly is that the whole calorie counting assumption means that it doesn't matter what form that calorie is. It has the same effect on your body. Therefore, whether you're cutting out fat calories or carb calories or you know, low-calorie sodas or whatever it is, it's, it's going to be fine. But we now know that's not true. Um, and there's several science experiments which now absolutely nail that. One was um, in America where they gave people identical meals um, for two weeks in a sort of enclosed semi-prison and one was homemade and one was ultra-processed, both identical calories, macros, the same. The group with the ultra-processed foods over by about 200 calories every day. They kept coming back to the buffet for more, okay? So, yes, the same calories, but the effect on the body meant they were hungrier. Why is that? We don't know for sure. It could be that those chemicals in the ultra processed foods affect the gut microbes, and they then send signals to the brain saying, eat more, this isn't a natural, you know, this is a really weird chemical. It's doing something weird to me. I'm producing something weird in exchange. It could be they get absorbed much quicker, so you get a big sugar rush and you know, the nutrients get in to your body in a way faster than they should do in nature. And so your brain doesn't have time to say, I'm full. It normally takes 20 minutes or so to, to get that fullness. Um, or, you know, it. it so the, it could be the matrix of the food. It could be the chemicals in the food. It could be its effect on the gut microbes. Um, but it also could be uh, things like your sugar spikes. So in the ZOE predict studies where basically we've given now 50,000 people um, in the US and the UK, the same foods at the same time, same time of day, everyone's got these muffins. We show that people, um, one in four people who have these muffins and are wearing it, we wear glucose monitors, which tells you for two weeks what's happening in your glucose. One in four people get a real sugar dip three hours later. So this is where you, you rise in sugar, which is normal. And then as it comes down, it goes below baseline, but only in one in four people. And when that happens, those people end up, uh, overeating the next meal. And during the day they feel more tired, more hungry. That's this, the sort of 11 o'clock slump, if you like, if you've had a carby breakfast, some people feel that others don't. and. What's really interesting is that, so one in four people eating an identical muffin of identical calories will then overeat by this, you know, another 10% that day. So you can see how that just blows the calorie mm. um, idea out, that the calories in equals calories out. Everything's the same. And, and, the, and the third thing is that ultra-processed food says it has the calories that's equal to the whole foods, but often... They don't account for the fact that it's ground up, it's highly refined. And so if you take like almonds or something like this, they might use ground almonds. And you compare ground almonds to whole almonds, there's perhaps 30% less available calories in the whole almonds than there is in the other one. So the whole thing is a complete nonsense and it's there because the food industry wants you to focus on the calorie, the fat content, sugar so you don't have to think about the quality of the food and it's something that they can control very easily get their profits higher keep adding stuff to the product that's synthetic when we know that a lot of things they're adding are harmful for our gut microbes so that the artificial sweeteners are harmful the the glues they stick the foods together the emulsifiers some people react quite a lot to those and they cause problems. So the whole thing is like this giant camouflage. And that's, that's really one thing I'm, you know, my probably my number one bugbear is to get people to see the light, stop obsessing about calories and start thinking about food much more as quality
1: and what it does to your body. Quality food. What is quality food in your definition of the phrase?
0: It's the opposite of ultra-processed food, which is whole food, which is made with uh, from the original ingredients of plants, mainly plant-based, but it's not exclusively, that um, contains all the nutrients that those, those plants produce without it being stripped away or uh, boiled up or uh, highly pressurised, deformed, and so they have to add in back those nutrients. So, you know, it's things in their pure form. So it's it's nuts, it's seeds, it's it's grains that haven't been ground up super finely. It's all the amazing plants and fruits and vegetables that we've got. They they're healthy foods, but you know, it's it's not straightforward. Yes, I've got this list of ten superfoods. It's it's understanding that many foods that uh, you know are healthy for us. Most of them are. In their in their original form, berries nuts um, virtually every vegetable is healthy for us if it 's in that original form it 's only because we've we had to learn to preserve things we had to do trickery to make you know margarines and things that with chemistry that we've moved away from that but you know going back you know. Olive oil, for example, is is a great example of something that's been vilified often because it has lots of fats in it. And you know, certainly, I was told, Med, "Oh, the trains, they have they have olive oil on everything. It's horrible. It's all fatty." Turns out that's that's a perfect. You know, it comes from the olive. The good stuff, extra virgin olive oil, has very little done to it, and that is a a good, healthy, quality food. But it can be refined. You can take that and you can keep refining it. Um, you can take corn on the cob, as an example, and then you, you know, and then you've got I don't know, uh, tortilla chips or something down the other end, is, which bears or cornflakes, which bears no resemblance to the original, and they're all versions on the spectrum.
1: God, it's so confusing, you know, because what you've said to me is, you know based on research and studies but then when i go to a supermarket labeling even i was just thinking then cornflakes i think i grew up thinking cornflakes were healthy because it says corn in the title you know what i mean and it's and when you're trying to navigate i was just thinking if i'm going down an aisle now hearing what you've just said that that quality food is food that is not ultra processed and kind of resembles its original form when you walk down the aisle in the supermarket everything is trying to pretend that it's good so how do I know what is good? I mean, I can go to the vegetable aisle and I can say, okay, that looks like a cabbage. It looks like no one's messed with that. There's been no study done on that. To It hasn't been through a laboratory. But how do I, like, if I'm in an aisle tomorrow, how do I know what food is good and what is not? Well, you've said the first thing. If it's not in a package,
0: um, you, you're pretty sure it's good. Okay, okay. so um, uh, if it's concealed in some package that's got, you know, happy children and, and si- signals of vitamins in it, that should be a, a warning sign. Uh, You know, the more they have to advertise the food and say what its additives are and everything, the more you should be wary about it. The number of ingredients is another pretty good sign. So once you get over 10, uh, particularly if there's lots you've never heard of, you wouldn't find in your kitchen, you should also be wary that that is ultra processed food. Anything that says low calorie, that says means they've had to add in lots of artificial sweeteners or protein extracts or something else is also a big uh, danger sign. Uh, Low in fat means they've replaced the natural fat with something else that's cheaper. And these are all warning signs, you know. uh, And, you know, you take breakfast cereals. I mean, I used to, I used to eat lots of breakfast cereals. I was brought up on them, highly sugary stuff. And then I thought I was being healthy when I moved to Muesli's and um, posher posher stuff. Uh, But actually when you still, you know, that appearance of healthiness, it's still got lots of additives in it. It's still got lots of sugar in it. It's just, and those cereal packets have added vitamins in it, but they're often in a very poor form. Uh, I did the experiment once where I, Um, took some cornflakes or special care, I can't remember, that said had added iron and if you mix it up you can put a magnet on it, you can get off the iron filings, they're so cheap that um, they're just added to tick a box saying it has iron but they don't get into your body or do anything so anything that's got these things added with this in it, low in this is a sign that they're obscuring the quality of the product so it's You know, uh, but there's a lot of brain... You know, we've been brainwashed for years and decades in this. And, uh, you know, I was as well as a doctor. You know, I should know better. And yet I've completely changed my... Two of my meals completely. So I've gone from having muesli with low-fat milk and an orange juice and uh, a cup of tea because I did... You know, when I started doing these tests for Zoe. I found out that gave me a massive sugar spike, and it was a terrible way to start the day. And I got these you know, dips at eleven o'clock to a high full-fat yogurt, nuts, seeds, a few berries, and I never have orange juice. That's on my. That's a really unhealthy drink for everybody. And I have a, lots of black coffee, which I now know is good for me. So that's totally different. I changed my lunch. For at least 10, 15 years, um, when I got in the hospital, I was having a hospital lunch, which used to be in the canteen. Then it was Marks and Spencer's. Got a healthy looking sandwich with brown bread, sweet corn, and tuna, and a smoothie in a little bottle. And that gave me a massive sugar spike. And I wouldn't have known that. And I was told that should have been a healthy thing to eat. So, you know, there's there's general rules, but also there are specific rules, and this whole idea of individuality is coming in. So it could be that you could you might be fine on that. Don't know. Um, I was very annoyed because when I started, we were starting doing this testing for Zoe. I had all these spare kits, and I gave my wife one as well. And we sit down, and she's. Um, french belgian and loves croissants and so we'd have croissant each mine would shoot up she had no change at all in her her, her sugar which is really annoying yeah <laughs> so but it, it also brings brings home the fact that you know it, it, everyone loves simplistic rules but you can only get so far with them you have to start experimenting yourself and see what works for you and not just take everything for granted and that's really the that's the whole essence of, of really, you know, setting up this personalised nutrition research and Zoe and everything else. But uh, on top of this general advice about changing a whole idea of food, I think because I think they do go hand in hand. That if you realise there are these individual differences, you realise it's not as simple as you've been told. It's not that fats are evil. It's not that calories are bad. You know,
1: it's it's much more nuanced. You mentioned breakfast there. I heard that you do some intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting. I think I pronounced that correctly. Intermittent fasting. Yes, we'll just uh, use AI to swap that for if. my voice. What, what oh, is it? it's intermittent? Let's just call it fasting, okay? <laughs> just for people at home that can't say it. Um, fasting has become a really popular thing over the last three or four years. A lot of my friends talk about it. Again, it's, it's almost feels like it's going into fad territory again. But what is the... What are the facts around fasting intermittently? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's I guess it's
0: been quite a hot topic for about ten years now. Mm-hmm. But it's intermittent fasting is an umbrella term for all kinds of different fasting. And you might remember the five-two style of intermittent fasting was quite big about ten years ago. And there were also these extended fasts, often used in America, people doing two or three-day uh, fasts and detoxifying, oh gosh. Uh, yeah, that sort of stuff. So you've got to realize that you have to specify what time, what, what we're talking about. But I think the most interesting type of fasting now is what's called time restricted eating. Time restricted eating. I can say that. TRE. Okay. So the idea is you don't change what you eat. You just change how you eat and you change your eating window. So most people in In the UK and US, they'd be eating for 14 or 16 hours a day. It's me. Right? Lots of snacks and extending late night. And what time-restricted eating is, we're trying to reduce that to something like 10 hours on average. Okay, it varies. There are some more extreme ones, some milder ones, but that seems to be about the sweet spot that most people can manage. 10 hours, which means uh, you you start eating at 11 and you finish at 9 for example, or you might want to go from 8 in the morning until 6 at night or 7. I can't do my maths. Um, now, there's actually science behind this now. So there's plenty of studies showing that not only in mice and rats this helps their, their metabolism, their energy management, but there's some evidence it helps with weight loss to a small extent, but it's, it, it improves your inflammation levels, and a lot of people report energy and mood improvements. We've just done a big study with the the Zoe Health Study, which is the the free app where we had 130,000 people sign up to do this trial, if you like, where they would do this for two weeks. And amazingly, most people managed it, and we did see improvements in mood and energy um, just in that two-week period. And actually, hunger went down, weirdly. But a lot of this we found is people were actually snacking less so they weren't we will not tell them to do less you just you can do whatever you like in that time but people were just paying more attention and not grabbing something to eat just before they went to bed now the science behind it's really interesting because your body needs time to recover so your cells we're programmed on this circadian rhythm that is very much in in line with the sun from you know when we were all in East Africa and it was um, everything was quite programmed so that our body is in this state of work during the, the day. We eat, do all our stuff, and then at night it recovers. As the stress hormones go down, then your repair stuff comes out. So it cleans up all the muck in our cells. But we now know that it's the same happening in our guts. So if you rest your gut for uh, 14 hours, you give time for all the other microbes to come out and act as a repair team, like a cleaning force that hoover up all the mess you've left behind, they clean up nicely. Your gut wall, and so it's not leaky. Get rid of inflammation, and this change, giving them a break, really seems to have these great benefits. So, I'm—I was a real skeptic about about this, and I, I did lots of fasting and things, for experimenting with the books. But it, I think the last two years, I've really been convinced that this is something that that does work, and is right for some people but importantly it's not right for everybody and uh, there is an individuality you may be a snacker that finds it very hard to go long periods of time without eating okay i do know we've got several people at zoe who say oh this is terrible you know it's the, but for me you know i suddenly realized when i wake up in the morning i'm not starving it's not the first thing i i think in my head and it's very easy to wait till 11 o'clock to have something to eat and it's not a big deprivation. that's something you could carry on the whole of your life, which I think is what we're, we're we're into here. So I think there's a lot to be said for this, but I think people need to personalize it. Again, I, you know, people love a single, single black and white solution to all their problems, but I'd say to everyone, try it. You may want to, you know, do, do a sort of American style eating really early and finishing early. Um, you might be that kind of person who's just a sort of morning person, mm-hmm. or you might be someone that prefers the social life of eating in the evening and um,
1: skipping the morning. It's gonna be it's gonna be take quite a lot of discipline for me to stop having chocolate at two am. So, could you just summarise again? Time restricted eating the, the the key benefits of it are my microbiome will be healthier, gives my microbiome more time to clean up, which will have an impact potentially on weight loss and overall energy levels et cetera, et, Mood. et cetera. Mood. Yeah. okay, cool, that's enough for me. I think that's a convincing enough reason. And I imagine there's also an impact on sleep there because, you know, me having chocolate at 2 a.m. is probably not going to give, um, help me have quality sleep at night.
0: Absolutely, yes. No, I think there is a link. Um, we're studying that. We don't have any results from, from the, that trial, but we are logging uh, sleep quality as well. Uh, but per- personally, I've, I've, when I've started to do it, I do sleep better. I did start to get some reflux as well. So a lot of people suffer from um, heartburn, right. and and that's again because you're eating and and drinking alcohol quite late, then not leaving enough time to go to bed. That causes sort of stress on your body when it's supposed to be relaxing. So I think, yeah, everyone give that a, you know give that a try, and it, you know it could be right for you, and it just makes you think also. You're just thinking about more what you're eating, you know, to say, okay, let's give my body a rest, just like you would if you're doing an exercise regime, whatever. It's just thinking about
1: eating in a different way other than just fuel. What about vitamins? You know, I've I've got all these vitamins by my bedside, not by my bedside, by my ki- by my bathroom sink in my bedroom, because you know, I went I went to some market and the lady there told me that all these vitamins are important, and then. I don't know, I might have seen an ad on Facebook or something, and I ended up buying more vitamins. And I've, I'm like a collector of vitamins. we are
0: not alone. I think 50% of the British population have a regular vitamin or supplement every day. And it's massive industry. I read Chapter 5 of your book. So I'm a bit rude about vitamins in there. Please. <laughs> Please be. So yeah. I, I know I, and I, it's the thing that upsets people most. Um. People say, oh, I, don't, I believe everything else you say, but I don't believe your chapter on, on vitamins. And I th- again, it's, it's a bit like a religion, you know, popping a pill and uh, hoping that it's doing some good. All the evidence shows that when you do a randomised controlled trial, these vitamins don't work. Unless you've got some really weird disease or deficiency, or for some reason you can't eat a normal diet. It's a last resort for people who have terrible diets. If you have a a decent, varied diet with plenty of plants in it, uh, you don't need vitamins at all. And I used to take them, and I don't take any now, except uh, the occasional B12, because um, I've always been low in B12 and I have hardly any meat. But apart from B12, all the evidence... Points to these things being a complete waste of money,
1: you're telling me all those vitamins I've swallowed over the last ten years have been a the result of me being duped by the vitamin industry and have no material impact on my health.
0: Yes, well, they might have had some harmful effects, like people taking calcium and things like this are uh, shown if you take regular calcium tablets, more likely to get heart disease.
1: You're joking. I've literally got a tub of calcium tablets by my by my kitchen sink as we speak
0: yeah well, there's calcium in nearly every plant, and things that we we normally break down and absorb in small amounts regularly. You take something like a calcium supplement, you might be taking half a gram of it. our body isn't designed to break down that huge slab of chemical and so it doesn't get distributed well and studies show that it gets deposited in your arteries and and can harden them up so there's no, there's no evidence that calcium helps people doesn't help broken bones it doesn't help osteoporosis all the things that we were told it did do so all the evidence was out there and you've got all these companies pushing it so many of these things can be counterproductive but my main worry about them is if people think they can pop a pill they don't have to think about proper food yeah and therefore everything can comes in a bottle or a pill. They can go, you know, just have a junk food diet and be healthy. And that's so wrong because um, diet, I think, is the most, as I said, the most important food choice we make for our health. And to take stuff that doesn't work, that could be counterproductive and sometimes harmful, is is a, a daft delusion.
1: I have been under a daft delusion I've got so many supplements upstairs.
0: Well, they could have a placebo effect. You might feel better because you've taken them, you know? You say,
1: I feel like a healthy person because I take them. I don't know whether I am a healthy person, <laughs> but I feel like one. When I do it, I do it. And it's really uncomfortable because I'm taking sometimes I'm taking like eight different pills, like calcium and potassium and whatever else, And when I'm doing it, even though it's hard to swallow them and it tastes rancid, I feel like I'm doing future Steve a favour.
0: Yeah. Well, there you go.
1: But clearly I haven't. We'll
0: take- done get someone to make you some dummy ones so there's got nothing harmful in it and you can still feel (laughs) good. A lot cheaper.
1: I'll I'll give that a shot. Um, What about sugar? So I I was keto for the last, roughly the last two months. I tried um, the diet because I I had a lot of good things about the ketogenic diet as it relates to inflammation. And I have to be honest, I lost about a stone in weight fairly quickly. First time I've really seen a huge dip in my weight, but also not just that, my the gut issues that I'd had seemed to to to, to go. So I, I'd almost lived for the last couple of years, specifically like after the age of twenty five for some reason. Suddenly, foods that I thought had gluten in them, like white breads and pa- pastas, and even like soy sauce and things like that, were making me live in this permanent state of like being bloated. And I'd go to the toilet, and I didn't feel great, and it was kind of this pain throughout the day a couple of hours after eating one of those foods. And then I tried the ketogenic diet. So I cut out pretty much all of those things. Like I didn't have any bread, most of the sort of processed bad carb. I don't even know what I'm talking about here, so correct me, but I cut out what I thought were the bad carbs that were having a bad reaction on me. And then I cut out a lot of sugar, like refined sugars, basically cut it completely out. And I ate meat, vegetables, um, berries, and things like that. Felt fantastic. Lost a stone in weight. Very, very, very lean, body fat dropped completely, slept well, high energy. Um, what's your view on the ketogenic diet?
0: Well, your story is, I mean, you can take it two ways. One, you could say you really improved your diet because you had, it sounds like you had a pretty shitty diet before that, right? So, well, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So anything could have been a, an improvement if someone says, if you're eating real foods, right? So yeah, it sounds like the keto, you weren't having keto out of a bottle or a plastic. No, no, no,
1: no. I was having meals. Yeah. I had someone pop come up. and prepare them for me. Yeah
0: proper home-cooked meals rather yeah. than takeaways. and Exactly. You know, and so you're making the shift from perhaps, you know, the average UK diet, which is high in refined carbs, which is, you know, probably had a fair bit of ultra-processed foods in there as well, to this other diet. So I would expect you to feel better. Um, to be a keto diet, you've got to get to about 70% um, fat, right? Which, yeah. Which is really really hard for anyone to to sustain it's virtually impossible
1: that's why i said for the last two months
0: i'm no longer keep on the keto diet <laughs> so you know you've you've gone you're so, so you have probably done a mild keto diet right that didn't put you into ketosis right but got you off these high refined carbs yeah so but going back to the basic question um keto diet's do seem to work for people with diabetes who are overweight as a way of getting them off their medications and sort of kick-starting them into a, a better health pattern. And there are some people I think it, it can work for. Um, I think for as a sustainable diet, I don't think it makes any sense. I don't think many people can still be on it a year later if it's a true ketogenic diet mm. um, because no studies have really shown that people can sustain Eating that level of fat and, and protein and virtually uh, no carbs.
1: That's all I ate for yeah. about eight weeks. Yeah, but you were eating lot, you were eating plants as well. Um, so I'd have like some plants. It wasn't just was, steak, was it? It was. I mean, at one point it felt like that. It was. Uh, there were some plants in there. There was some, like lettuce and broccolis and stuff like that. But I was googling everything to check if it was keto friendly before I put it in my mouth. So uh, yeah, I mean, so I think what
0: interesting is if you, you went from that to a more Uh, Mixed healthy gut friendly diet, you know, which includes fermented foods, small amounts of breads, grains, etc. I think you'd still find the same benefits because you're shifting from ultra, you know, because I would suspect that if you did the Zoe test, for example, um, you would have quite a big reaction to sugars Mm -hmm. and your fat control would be quite good. So it sounds like you tolerate quite large amounts of fat without too much problem. Whereas the sugars would spike like me, you get um, a reaction, you get hunger, you get, you know, these feelings of tiredness, etc. So just by upping your fat levels, lowering your refined carb levels, you might've produced the same without doing that extreme idea. Because my problem with the keto diets is ultimately it's restrictive. You're reducing the number of foods you're thinking about, you're... Uh, ultimately then harming your gut microbes long term, because you're not giving them the variety of different plants if you're not careful. And that happens to a lot of people. They go down any of these slightly fatty diets, and they end up with a much more restrictive, um, you know, intakes than they would have done, which long term will cause some problems for their immune health and long term health. So that's why I'm generally against these extreme diets of any kind, other than if you are you know, seriously ill diabetic and you're overweight, it, for three months, it could be a really good way to get you off your meds.
1: Interesting. Yeah, because I'm, I'm trying to find, now, so I went from the keto diet to the New York diet. Basically, we went to New York for two weeks and I just, I really <laughs> fucked up. Um But now I'm back. I'm trying to find the nice middle ground, the sustainable middle ground. That word sustainability in my diet and, and also my fitness has been key to me. Um Because if I can't sustain it, there's no point doing it because you end up yo-yoing. Afterwards. So I went from the keto diet, as I said, to the New York diet. And now I'm back in, in, the, in the UK. So we'll Go on the gut-friendly diet. Which know? is, please detail the gut-friendly diet. Just, it's, you know, 30
0: different plants a week. Um, lots of fermented foods. That's your yogurts, your kefirs, your kombuchas. I don't know if you like, kimchi, mm-hmm. um, kraut, uh, miso, koji, Japanese food eating the rainbow so you've got plenty of colors on your plate everything's got because um, that means they've, you've got plants there that have got these defense chemicals mm. and the, we haven't talked about these but these are the polyphenols that are in plants that give them their bitter taste but also the bright colors that you get in berries and you get in bright colored lettuce and cabbages and they are rocket fuel for your gut microbes so the more you've got of those the healthier your gut the more you dampen down inflammation, so really important to, as well as diversity, lots of colour, and lots of high polyphenol foods—things you wouldn't have thought are healthy. So dark chocolate. I know you like dark chocolate. Well, I'm not sure—is it milk chocolate? You have it moment? yeah? It's milk chocolate. I like well, you need girlfriend.
1: to change to dark chocolate. My girlfriend says that she's obsessed with dark chocolate. Well, and she always tells me
0: it's take healthy. her lead. It slowly, slowly wean yourself off the milk and get on to real chocolate,
1: okay? Which uh, actually tastes of something really good rather than sugar isn't white chocolate the worst yes do you know how I know that that's the only thing I know about food um I went and did a chocolate making class and at the start of the class the instructor says pour the sugar into so we had these big tubes and she said pour the sugar into the tube so I'd like poured a bit in she was like no 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 fill that tube with 60% sugar I was like, what? She was like, fill the tube with- I was like, well, why? She goes, that's white chocolate. It's 60% sugar. Yeah. So I pour this, this sugar into this tube and it fills it 60%. And then I put this little like oily liquid in and she goes, mix it. And she goes, that's white chocolate, 60% sugar. There's people right now that are sat there eating it who'd realise that they're giving themselves early onset diabetes. But... No. So dark chocolate's a good example. Coffee, we already mentioned. And Do you like coffee? I do. I, well, I don't- For me, coffee's more of a utility- I use it before I have these conversations so I don't fall asleep because I, I'm very, you know, I've never been good at it. You might have do- a boring guest. You think well, myself. sometimes, but <laughs> it's more so just to try and keep my mind sharp and to keep focus. But um, I, I read chapter 13 of your book about coffee, and I've always been a bit of a coffee skeptic because I tend to have a belief that everything in life comes with a cost. And no one I've sat here with has ever been able to tell me the cost of an artificial boost in my focus, attention, energy. I feel like nothing's for free in life, you know? So what is the cost of coffee?
0: Well, I think there's a variability. Some people, there is a big cost. They get uh, the shakes, they uh, can't sleep, and it has other neurotoxic effects if you have too much. So I think it's all about dose. And this is, it, it is a drug that if you get the dose right, is very beneficial for you. If you get it wrong, or you've got some genetic problem, you can't process it right. Um, it, it, it's a real, it's it's a problem. But some of the benefits I was talking about um, are also there in uh, decaffeinated coffee. So it also has these, because again, it's a great example of how we always think of coffee as caffeine, right? Mm, mm. And yet, if you do these epidemiology studies, you know these big population ones, people who are having regular decaf coffee also have similar heart benefits. So it's other things in this fermented bean that are helping us. And I think this is just, you know, it's a great lesson moving away from our reductionism. We always like to think of, you know, one food is one vitamin or one chemical, mm-hmm. and that's an easy way to think about it. We can't comprehend they've got a thousand different uh, mm-hmm. ingredients. So decaf coffee, but, yeah, well, you've got green tea um, is is also pretty good. Um you know, there's many other fermented foods. But um the polyphenols are really good and important to realise in, in the book, Food for Life, I go into exactly that. It's a practical guide to when you go into the supermarket and you go to the aisle, So, gosh, I'm in the vegetable aisle. Do I get my usual iceberg lettuce that 90% of us do because uh, it lasts for two weeks or, you know, longer than our prime ministers? <laughs> or do we uh, go for... A slightly more expensive loose leaf rossololo with purple leaves that uh, has a thousand times more polyphenols. And so, you really shop on color, yes. Now I do, I had no idea about this until doing it. But, but also, the fact that it's loose leaved means that it, those those plants have had to survive in more difficult conditions to fight off predators and wind and everything else, so they're tougher. That's why herbs and spices are also tough because they're the growing tips of the plant that's where you get all the good bits and so it's a rethinking all this idea about what's good about food in this when you start thinking about your gut and you know the sugars that it releases etc so um for you yeah i mean if i think as a general rule if everybody ate to keep their gut microbes happy they'd be on a, a, a pretty healthy diet Uh, Even before you get into personalization.
1: Now, chapter 13 of your book, we talked about coffee there, is called Coffee Can Save Your Life. You mean that quite literally, don't you? Yes. Um,
0: As an epidemiologist, if you drink three cups of coffee a day, you are
1: less likely to die 10 years later. Jesus Christ. But there's also a link between um, coffee, depression and suicide, right? Well, there are lots of links. Because I was reading that in studies, people were less suicidal if they'd been drinking coffee. Um, I think
0: that I'm sure there is a study on that. In general, what I what I do when I look at these is I don't take any one study on its own. I will try to get uh, look at all the literature and say how many studies there are on that and is there a... a confirmatory one that would make it real or not so i've tried not to overclaim. yeah because if you look at you know you you look at the daily mail or you know the general press in, in the uk they will pick up on any one story and say coffee gives you cancer coffee does this coffee gives you dementia next year you know it saves your life it does this so you can switch but what i think people need to do is you know, especially after COVID has been much more sort of selective about how they see a study, it's epidemiology, you know, that it has to have confirmatory data. Mm. Um, So I think, yeah, coffee, we know it improves sports performance by 1%, right? So for most people, that doesn't really matter, right? You know, 1%, am I going to run faster on my treadmill at the gym by 1%? No, but it it does give you a little bit of focus. And uh, for most people, it's... You know, it's a good drug that's found in food and I like coffee because also it helps, it's allowed in a fast, so time-restricted eating, you're allowed black coffee and black tea and it, um, because it doesn't cause a sugar spike or anything else, but it's, you have to cut out the sugar.
1: You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. I am a self-diagnosed gluten intolerant. I read chapter 16 of your book and you think most of that is made up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, most people who think they're gluten intolerant aren't when you test them. Okay, so that's, that's the fact. It doesn't mean that everyone's making it up. That some of those will be real. But I think gluten got this bad rap um, about 10 years ago and there's we know that, yes, of the population really do have a gluten problem. It's called celiac disease and they'll be vomiting and have terrible diarrhea with the smallest bit of gluten. Then there's a whole other group of people that believe they have gluten intolerance of which studies show about three quarters when they're tested with gluten are fine in a blind blinded way. If someone slipped you a a biscuit or something, you know, um, or pasta is often the, the way to trick people. And I think many people have probably a more general irritable bowel syndrome that th- that are blaming gluten because it's one they're taking that one protein that they know about from foods that have thousands of them and saying, this is the problem." Again, this reductionism, and it, then they cut all, everything out, but they might be cutting out things that were like the sandwich, for example that was causing me glucose spikes. So they might feel better when they cut that out. And they then say, okay, I've cut out bread. Therefore, um, I'm not getting sugar spikes and tiredness. That must have been the gluten. But actually, it was nothing to do with that. It's just um, cheap bread uh, that has nothing to do with it. So I think often people are taking gluten as an excuse. And sometimes they do feel better when they cut out all those foods because they're eating less Processed foods, as a result of it, not always, but mm. it's something else in the bread or the pasta that that they were eating too much, or they were um, eating too fast, or these things that I think are important. So, I would urge everyone to, you know, look again at whether it is gluten or it is something else about their food habits before that was bad, and reevaluate it, and you know, build up your plant diversity and your gut microbes instead because the worry is that all these people on on gluten most of them have a rather restrictive diet they get very worried about new foods and that's like the worst scenario because you end up on a vicious circle where you, you get more and more nervous so you have a smaller and smaller group of foods you're happy with yeah your microbes get um
1: diminished and you have much less flexibility to deal with any new food that hits you one of the, um, we've got a fitness group amongst some of my friends. There's about 10 of us in it. And, um, we've been tracking how often we work out and how frequently we work out and the workouts that we do. And one of the things I have to say is pretty much no one in the group has lost any weight. We've been doing this for a year and, uh, that kind of bucks what you would think. So the only time that I lost weight was actually when I went on the keto keto diet. I went from 14 stone eight to 13 stone eight in roughly in several weeks, but, exercise and exercising for almost religiously for the last two and a half years doesn't really seem to impact my weight at all in a you know in the way that the fitness experts might tell me on Instagram what's your stance on the role that exercise play plays in weight loss
0: has very little role in weight loss all the studies such long-term studies show uh, it doesn't help uh, weight loss and it's been grossly exaggerated as an easy fix for our obesity problem.
1: Exercise doesn't help weight loss?
0: No. All the studies show that. The only caveat to that is if you have changed your diet, improved your diet, and you've lost some weight, maintaining some exercise does help prevent it going back up again. But as on its own, if you don't change your diet, it's of no use. And that's well known now by all the obesity
1: experts and all the studies. This sugar make us fat. Is that the culprit? Is that um, one of the main things that's contributing to?
0: No, again, that's that's reductionism. You know, okay. we, the. But the reason uh, the reason exercise doesn't work, it's, it's important to realise this, is because we all know this. That you know, you, you go for a walk, you build up hunger before a meal. That's what your parents told you, you know. And everything about exercise is after it, your body slows down. your your metabolism slows down and it tries to regain the energy that you've lost. That's just what our evolution. And so that's why it's a, you're not going to, it's great for your health. I I exercise fantastic for your mood. Um, it's great for your heart, anti-cancer, all kinds of things. We should all do it, but absolutely not. If your goal is weight loss, you have to do something about changing your diet. And I think that's that's the big, uh, a huge myth, particularly perpetuated by gyms and uh, fitness apps and everything else. Uh, and it, it is complete nonsense.
1: I read that you, um, when you looked at studies over 30 years and you looked at how many studies had been done on the relationship of exercise and weight versus things like sugar and weight. There was 12, more, 12 times more studies done on the relationship of exercise and weight versus sugar and weight. And why, why is that? Why is there less research done on the latter?
0: Um, I think that's the influence of governments and the food companies and the drink companies. So uh, a lot of the exercise research done in the last 20 years was sponsored by uh, large corporations who wanted to make this link between uh, exercise and weight loss so that they could continue to sell sugary, ultra processed foods and drinks and just say it's childhood obesity is because we've, we don't have playgrounds and we don't uh, encourage this. And that's why the Cokes and the Pepsis are always there at the Olympic, sponsoring Olympic events and associating themselves with sport. And they gave hundreds of millions to various physiology departments, sports departments nutrition departments to do research in this area basically it was really hard to get anyone to do research into how sugary drinks make you uh gain weight or cause problems because they the amount of money for nutrition has been abysmally poor you know in from from governments and that's why you know we the only the first ever study of ultra processed food in a controlled trial was only about three years ago and it's been around for you know Thirty, forty years. So, such is the power of that lobby that it it doesn't necessarily distort the research in a sort of you know evil way, but they point it to make sure that the researchers are, are working in an area that they want uh, people to work in, and distracting them, keeping them away from talking about sugars or even artificial sweeteners, which, in my view, are nearly as bad because they're sort of you know hidden. Um, and deflecting us from the idea that yes giving kids sugary drinks or even artificial sweet drinks is going to be bad for them and, and cause obesity
1: wait so i'm i've been i've cut my i cut out sugary drinks about a year ago. I still have the same brands, but I have the no sugar version oh dear oh shit what do you mean oh dear
0: well all the all the, the summary of the trials shows that if you take uh, uh, young, adults, young adults and kids and they would say on two cans of you know full sugar sodas and you change them to the diet version there's no real difference in in weight or um, metabolic um, changes in their blood uh, the, the, you will go to the dentist less so you don't get as many fillings but and yet, you know, you should be gaining three hundred calories, right? If you were doing two cans a day, so it doesn't work out as it should do, and that's because of the extra. These chemicals are not inert, so the sweeteners in kids they change their their brains to give them. Uh, they want more sweetness in their food. Okay, so it, it it could reflect your wish for your your late night milk chocolate. Who knows? Um, and it it makes it very difficult train kids to have more bitter foods or sour foods if they've got these artificial sweeteners in their diet all the time. But they've now shown that all these sweeteners actually affect your gut microbes. So even stevia, you know, these sort of so-called healthy ones, have an effect on your gut microbes, and they're not inert. So we know that saccharin and sucralose also cause spikes in your blood sugar. Uh, When I did it, you know, I have a trace they're not supposed to but they, they actually do things they're not supposed to so we know very little about these these products and my view is that they are harmful probably not as bad as having the sugar but they are absolutely not a health drink and we should be encouraging people to have you know teas and kombuchas and uh, more, more bitter tasting interesting flavors and foods than just this ultra sweet uh, chemical concoctions
1: it's it's this sugar conglomerate that have been funding much of the research that points towards um some of the things you're talking about there there that's also the conglomerate that wants us to believe the calories in calories out approach because if i just view every all foods as kind of equal and on this sort of calorie number then i can drink some of the sugary fizzy, fizzy drinks and some of the processed foods as long as i keep it within that sort of calorie deficit I'll be fine. And so are they is that sugar conglomerate is the processed food conglomerate for the calorie model? Absolutely. They need that, right? They
0: absolutely it's vital, you know, zero calories or one calorie, you know, on the can that's what you see and you know you're fooling people into thinking this is a, a healthy drink and oh, you know, if I used to have full coke or pepsi and now I'm having the diet version I'm getting 300 calories less a day. I should lose weight. It's exactly what they've been doing. And they're also desperate to show that artificial sweeteners are really healthy and they come down on anyone who who tries to say that they're, you know, could be in any way dangerous. And yet they're not obliged to test them. So none none of the chemicals added really go through rigorous testing on how they affect our gut microbes. And this is... This, you know, their testing mechanisms haven't changed in 50 years.
1: The gut microbiome, um, the microbiome as an organ one of the things you talked about earlier was the impact it has on mood. And you know, this podcast is was started as kind of a business podcast. We have a lot of people that are interested in you know being more productive, being more successful, reaching for their goals. How Significant and how pertinent is the, the microbiome on my performance as an entrepreneur, as a business person? What do I need to know about the relationship as it relates to my mood, my performance, my mind?
0: Well, we know more about mood than uh, than anything else, um, and so we do know that depression, and anxiety is intricately linked to the quality of your gut microbes. We know this from mouse studies where they've transplanted. Uh, poo from anxious mice into sterile mice, and those new mice then become anxious and depressed. Really? So it, it's a transmissible condition. And if, if you go back to me telling you that one of the chemicals that our microbes produce is serotonin, okay, some sort of, the sort of cuddle, you know, love-friendly, warm um, chemical that affects our brain, that, you know, is... The key to dopamine and everything else that goes on in our head. So the levels of that are really important for us having the right neurochemical balance in our head that stops us getting very depressed or very anxious. So we know that
1: you can transmit it between animals. So when they say they take the the poo out of one mouse, they put it inside its gut, inside its stomach, to give it the same microbiome makeup inside its stomach, and then that mouse will become depressed and anxious. Yes. So a lot, a
0: lot of the science behind microbiome is based on large scale human studies where you've just got um, cross sectional data or this is associated with this, but you don't know if it's cause or effect. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole other group that's been going off of, of, of projects for 30 years where they have these sterile mice who have no microbes. And you, you create in a, in a lab these other microbes that you would make them anxious or they're genetically anxious, you look at their microbes and you, put, you take their microbes and you put them into the sterile mice and you can change their mood and their um, attention span and everything else about that. So that, that shows that these have a, a direct effect rather than just being secondary. And that it links to the human data that shows if you take a groups of depressed or anxious people, you, virtually all of them will have a, a deranged microbiomes and be producing abnormal chemicals. And there have been now some recent studies showing that uh, compared to traditional antidepressant medication, uh, probiotics do as well uh, in many of these studies, if you give a course of probiotic medication. But even more impressive is if you give them a Mediterranean gut-friendly diet. You get actually better results um, with more remission than you do with antidepressant medication so it's one of the best examples of how you know feeding your, your gut can actually improve your mood and it's particularly important because we're seeing you know an epidemic of anxiety and depression that's partly because of, the, of not having many good gut microbes to start with lots of junk food diets which make it worse and then of course once you go into that cycle once you're depressed you're not thinking about food the last thing you want to go out and is you know oh i've got to go and get my kimchi today I, you know it, you just what it's just fuel so once you once you understand that you realize if you want to help someone with depression you know the first thing is to, not to put them straight onto an antidepressant which in many cases doesn't work because of this individuality as we're talking about which probably again related to the microbes because they break down the the tablet into its active chemicals but is to make sure they've actually got gut-friendly diet. And so this is a really exciting area of research. You mentioned
1: um, attention, the impact that the microbiome can have on attention. That's really interesting to me because ADHD has become a very um, widely discussed topic. Do you think there's a link between ADHD and the microbiome? Highly likely, yes. I mean... There's less
0: data in it than there is in depression and anxiety. The studies are smaller. But those that I've seen all show, again, uh, an abnormality in the gut microbiome of ADHD kids. And there have been a few studies showing that you can reverse it with um, poo transplants, which is another area that uh, um, was quite big a few years ago. It's it's not showing the same potential as it as it did, but certainly affecting attention uh, and mood with gut microbes is definitely on the cards. Uh, these studies need to be bigger, but there's certainly preliminary evidence that what's true for depression and anxiety is also true for this whole spectrum of, of other conditions. Also, you know, that have been linked in the past to diet and, you know, over sugar and E-numbers and all these kind of things, so... We, we've sort of known vaguely there's an association, but I think people haven't really pinpointed um, the gut microbiome, which I think they should. And so absolutely sure that if you improve the diet of many, many of these kids with ADHD, you, you would improve their symptoms. And there, I know there are some ongoing trials at the moment.
1: It's really been startling over the last couple of years how um, mental health has really taken centre stage and in- conversations, even conversations on this podcast, most of them, we discuss mental health issues and things like anxiety and depression. And as we look around the world, the stats around people that are being prescribed antidepressant pills, like they're called SSRIs, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, is rising. And I think it's doubled over the last decade or so with the US kind of leading the way. And then other countries like China and Japan at the bottom of the pack. What's your overall view on these these disorders, depression, mental health, anxiety. Um, do you think it stems predominantly from the microbiome? Is that your perspective now, from what you've learned?
0: No, I think they're they're multifactorial. So, I think we can't we can't just blame the gut microbiome because you do get these conditions in people who are you know otherwise healthy. Um, genetics plays a role. You know, I'm going back to my old <laughs> my old career. Um, a lot of evidence of strong genetics in things like depression anxiety. But you can have the tendency to it, but you need to be triggered into it. Uh, you need some environmental event. And it could be that once your gut microbes get in such a bad... Your know, gut health is such a poor state, your diet is so bad, that triggers this, and you just lack those chemicals that tip you over into it. So that's why I think... If you, if you link these epidemics, which we're going through at the moment, whether it's dementia, you know, uh, depression, obesity, diabetes, what are they all linked for? Increasing amounts of ultra-processed foods in our diet. You know, we're the number one country in Europe for this. Rates are still going up. Kids have over 70% of their food as ultra-processed now. Horrendous. Adults, it's nearly, you know... Between fifty and sixty percent of our of our meals, so I think that's effect on the gut microbes probably just tips this threshold in people who are susceptible. So it could be that I think that threshold is going to vary genetically. Some people are very resilient, some people are actually uh, quite susceptible, and that's my that's my view of it, um, which probably isn't popular because it's again. I make things more complicated than uh, mm-hmm. people like. But, you know, I think as a, as, a, as a scientist, I think most of these diseases are built up of a different number of risks. But unlike your genetics, you know, your gut health is something you can do something about. And that's what you're doing with Zoe? Exactly. That's The whole idea behind Zoe is to empower people to change their health by... Individualising what they eat that suits their own metabolism. What so, is Zoe? If someone hasn't heard of Zoe before, uh, Zoe is a, a personalised nutrition company that I founded um, nearly six years ago with uh, two uh, my co-founders who came to one of my uh, talks. I was talking about the diet myth and the microbiome, and they came up to me and said, "You know, we think what you're doing is really exciting. We'd we'd love to talk about." getting a company together to personalize this. And I I do get people asking me to do startup companies. And I said, uh, I'm not really interested unless we can spend several million on doing research first. You know, I'm not interested in the usual lifestyle company based on marketing. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd never see them again, but they came back two weeks later and said, yes, we've got several million. We're up, we're up and running. So I was, I was stuck then. I couldn't say no. Um, and, Basically, we got together this massive study called the Predict Study, which uh, looked at a thousand people, mainly twins. Gave them these identical meals, gave them these really fancy tech glucose monitors. We'd um, measuring blood spots with with fat, looking at their microbes, logging foods, seeing how they got on for two weeks, and used that data as algorithms to then predict how they would people respond to any food, and. Then we developed a home test and launched that initially in the in the US and uh, in the last uh, year the UK and we've now got 50,000 people doing this identical home test which is now a program that they then once you've got your scores personalized to you you can look up any food and it gives you a score from naught to hundred on what that uh, f- how that food is for you based on your sugar your glucose blood sugar. Profile your fat profile and your microbiome. So it's pushing everyone to have less sugar peaks, less fat peaks, and better gut health. And so it's changed. You know, so in a way, that's my muesli would give me a terrible score. Uh, my orange juice would, you know, a score of zero. Um, but it's also made subtle changes. So you know, I used to eat bananas, and now they they scored badly. So now I have pears instead or apples. Um, little minor shifts often pushing people and then you and you have a virtual nutritionist who helps you plan your menus to get overall scores that are pushing you more and more in this healthy direction so you just start to understand how what's best for your body and in a sustainable way and we don't talk about calories it's like a taboo word and we're not after crash dieting or anything else it's like improving yourself from the inside out so you and most people get improved dramatic improvements in their energy levels which we hadn't even thought about as the reason but people started telling us i feel much better because maybe we're cutting out all these fat and sugar peaks that until the technology came along no one knew about that were, were causing these problems so it's going super well we've got I still a quarter of a million people waiting for the product in the UK on the waiting list. Wow. And what's really nice is because we've got this this commercial arm, it allows us to do these other, um, we have the Zoe Health Study, which is a free app, which um, uh, now we're sort of moving that towards lifestyle, like this these fasting aids and things like this. We've got a neat podcast, the Zoe uh, Nutrition Podcast, which is getting the word out about our science plus blogs and things so you know it's part of a whole package of of things that we're doing to sort of educate people differently and and as i said make people think about food in a very different way and i think it's super exciting because we're you know we've just raised some more money we've done some crowdfunding as well which has gone amazingly well
1: i saw it this morning yeah it's a big valuation for a company
0: Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, I think 200 million. That's a big number. <laughs> it is. And it's but, you know, I think we've just got people's attention at exactly the right time. I agree. And the technology has just been exactly right. So often it's about timing.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've heard, as I said to you before we start recording, I've had two of my guests come here and tell me about Zoe individually. So I think it was Davina McCall and uh, Gabby Logan, who both mentioned it. And then I'd, I had this email in my inbox um, from a friend of mine who connected me to George. And then I started reading about some of the work that you had done and saw some of your videos. And that's why I was compelled to reach out and have you um, on this podcast. But the idea of personalized health kind of debunks the longstanding narrative and myth that there's this one perfect diet for all of us. There's this one set of foods that we should all be eating to be healthy. And this personalized approach makes a lot more sense. Um, so I think that's the kind of, the moment in time that you've arrived perfectly in from a Zoe perspective is this awakening to the perspective that personalized individual diets are um, the way forward.
0: Yeah. And it, yeah. And of course, COVID didn't, you know, COVID was an amazing time for apps Yeah, and of course. people wanting to take um, control when they feel they had no control. So I think the idea that you give people an app and they suddenly are empowered to do things. It's a very new idea, particularly in the UK. People said, no one over 60 is ever going to do that. They mm. told us it's going to fail. And it it was an incredible success because if you give people that interaction, that feeling that they are talking to someone and they're getting information back and it's a two-way process, it's a completely different idea to the old way of uh, communicating with people. So I think it is uh, a super exciting time for, for science. And, you know, we've just scratched the surface of what we can do with this personalization because... Once we get to a million people, you know, the less of detail we can provide back about whether you should be eating in the mornings and the evening. You know, how hungry does this make this food make you feel? You know, how do you stop, you individually, stop getting those sugar dips? How, um, you know, what combination of foods should you have? You know, how do you react to protein? Or, you know, what do you do to best sleep well? All, all these things which people want to know. Are going to be possible once we get the, these huge numbers.
1: This is all quite, you know, it's all. Qu- we turn on the. I'm going to have this conversation with you, then I'm going to turn on the TV or go on the internet or go on Instagram. And all of the, the influences there are going to be telling me a bunch of stuff, a bunch of fatty diets because they've all got their own incentives and their own ways of making money. If there was like one principle I could take away from all of your work, which I know is an, almost an impossible task to do, but if there was one thing to, just to focus on as I try and navigate the bombardment of social media and advertising posts that I'm I'm going to be um, on the receiving end of as I leave this conversation, what would that kind of guiding principle be for me not to forget? Pick changes that are going to last for life,
0: not as a quick fix. I think that's that's what we're after and that's what we want to try and instill is this sustainable healthy way of eating
1: so that means not not feeling like i'm not depriving myself and no okay
0: i think absolutely the 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 philosophy we have at zoe is that nothing is off the table there's no nothing's banned white chocolate even white chocolate you can be the milky bar kid you know you (laughs) can you can have it uh, but realize that you know it's that rare treat okay and the more you And so it doesn't break everything and you have to, you know, start again. Uh, It's about making sure that the rest of your week is full of good foods that give you a high score that can make up for it. So we're all going to, you know, you know, the Christmas season, everyone goes crazy and uh, overeats and stuff. As long as, you know, you've got this long-term plan that your gut is healthy and you're working and you're overall these – you're not going to get these peaks over time – For years, that's the the goal. So absolutely, it's about enjoying food, realising that it's an incredibly important social event. It's why the Mediterranean countries probably do so much better because it's so much part of family life and social life, even in the elderly, whether it's with a glass of wine. It's just taking more time, enjoying the novelty of foods and increasing our range of foods. So it's really broadening it. So I really want everyone to love food again and and not have all these hang-ups about i can't have that i can't have this if you've got enough plants on your plate basically you know you can eat anything
1: tim thank you i feel like that's a good place to end and i'm really going to go upstairs and reconsider that vitamin stack that i have <laughs> and also um throw out all those zero calorie sugar-free drinks that i thought were good for me um you've given me a lot to think about and i'm incredibly honored to have, have met you at this time in my life because it's, as i said it's very relevant to me but also to have been an given the chance to read your books. You've got so many amazing books, five of them in total, I believe. You're working on a new one. Um, my favourite was these two. So the the Spoonfed book, and also your most recent book, which is Food for Life, which is basically like a glossary of food. Is that an accurate state statement? It goes through all the key main foods and talks about the role they play in our health.
0: Yes, I mean, it's been called a food bible. or Food bible. It's a practical guide to pretty much all the common foods so you can get what the latest science is telling you about them all from a ethical health and environmental perspective
1: we have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest asks a question for the next guest not knowing who they're asking it for so um the question that's been left for you is you seem nervous Yeah, I'm very nervous. (laughs) Why why do people get nervous? People always seem to get nervous when I ask this question versus all of my (laughs) questions. (laughs) Ask me any science question, I don't mind. Well, it's, you know, um, the question that's been left for you is, if you could say one thing to a family member you've lost, who would it be? What would you say? And Why?
0: Well, it's got to be to my dad. Um, I guess I'd I'd probably say, I'm really sad we never got to talk properly. Um, And I I think you'd be proud of me now. And because, as I've explained, he died when I was 21. It's just the time you sort of... Coming out of studentship, you're becoming more mature at the time. You could start to talk to your parents, but you don't. So I feel that's my um, missing part of my life, if you like, that um, I never got to discuss um, anything meaningful with my father.
1: Why was that? I have that problem too now. I have that problem where I struggled to, to talk to my, my father
0: um i don't know i i think in in hindsight it's 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 a much easier thing to say i should have done this yeah
1: that's what I'm scared. and about.
0: and i think it could be that it's built into us that you know we have a very different relationship to our with our our fathers that makes it hard to to actually talk to them at the same level or you know not feel some sort of competition or critique um so i I think you're absolutely right that if I was sat down here with my father, um, it would be quite different <laughs> to wishing I had done uh, all those years ago. And I think it's part of that grieving process probably that having lost someone, you always feel somehow responsible that you should have done something before. Um, I think that's, that's part of it. And many people have recurrent dreams also about um, – because my father, you know, I never saw him – he just—I was just told he's dead. Came back from holiday. That was it. Go to the funeral, and it, it was a si- I, unreal um, series of events for me. And so, for years, I used to have these dreams. He'd, so, you know, he'd been in South America and suddenly appeared again. Oh, so I had to disappear, and um, I've come back. So that was an interesting um, idea going on my brain that, in some ways, he, he wasn't really dead, and um, you know, I'd get a chance to talk to him again. So it must have been, uh, you know, a key part in those
1: subconscious bits of my brain. That communication goes both ways, though, doesn't it? Because they have to also be.
0: Yeah. In retrospect, he, you know, he was very much a, you know, a (laughs) nineteen sixties dad. That you know, um, who wasn't really supposed to deal with children or anything else his he went to work and stayed in his study and because he wasn't sporty he never did anything with with me so absolutely yeah it's um but as i think you've talked about before on, on this podcast you know children have a very different perception of that relationship they feel it's um uh it's their fault in a way yeah but uh yeah he he was not a by modern stance he wouldn't be seen as a great dad um
1: Tim, thank you. What a wonderful conversation. Really, really appreciate your time and thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom with me. Absolute pleasure.